Good morning, everyone. I'd like to tell you about a song. It's a song about two cities. The first city, I'm going to pretend everyone over here belongs to this first city, is one of wonder. It's power and supremacy. It's the type of city that draws your attention. It invites you to look in and admire. This is the city alive with colors and music and flavors. The streets are alive. Entertainment lives in this city. It's a city where things get done, where business is made and opportunities abound. You have a chance in this city. If you live in it, you have a chance. There's a future in this city for you. Your life is safe in this city. The second city, though, this is this half over here. The second city is unpleasant. It's ugly. It's weak. And I'm really sorry. The city lacks meaning, and it might as well not exist. This city doesn't draw you in. In fact, you just keep on driving. It compels you to just keep on going, to move on. It's a city without culture. It's a city without creativity. It's a city without dreams. Nothing happens in this city. In fact, whereas entertainment lives in this city, humiliation lives in this city. This city doesn't exist for productivity, it exists for survival. You have very little to live for in this city. There's no future if you live in this city. Your life is at risk if you live in this city. And so this song about two cities is meaningful, yet it's very short. It's poetic, it's full of imagery, it's emotional, It's an important song because it sits in the gap between what these two cities represent. Between the joy and the aspirations and the momentum of this city and the ashes and the disorientation and the calamity of this city rests all kinds of emotions, all kinds of feelings, all kinds of prayers. This is the space where the song sits. It doesn't ever try to resolve the tension. It simply describes it. It simply verbalizes it. And then it waits. And so I'd love to read you the lyrics to this song. And it starts off by saying, Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done for us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. 
This is a song about two cities. But these cities aren't equal. The second city, the second city should have enjoyed the elements that the first city enjoyed, and so much more. Worse still, the first city overthrew the second city. One city expanded at the cost of the other. And so this is the song about Babylon and Jerusalem. And I want to make two observations, brief observations about the psalm, and I'm going to expand on a third point. The first point is that this psalm is unique because it sits in a time and place that can be recognized, whereas other psalms are fairly fluid in terms of when they could be dated, this psalm has a particular connection to a time and place. And in 587 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, invaded Jerusalem and destroyed not only the city, but destroyed the, the temple itself. And so prophets had spoken about this. Isaiah and Micah, 200 years before, had talked about what was going to happen. And other prophets, and Jeremiah was the unfortunate prophet who called, he had the call on his life to proclaim what God was going to do, and he had the unfortunate experience of having to live through it. And so the Babylonians came through this city, and they took uh, the cream of the crop at first, it happened across three waves. The Babylonians came, they took the, the cream of the crop of the Israelites, and one of those was Daniel, the prophet Daniel. Daniel is unusual because he didn't prophesy for the Israelites, he actually prophesied for the Babylonians, and he became, with his friends, um, fairly high in the ranks when it came to uh, this foreign superpower. Ezekiel was another one that was taken away. Ezekiel um, also describes this scene of sitting by the river, and he sees this vision of God's presence actually departing the temple and going somewhere else. And then we've got Jeremiah, poor old Jeremiah. He prophesied that this exile, this period of captivity would be 70 years, and he lived through it. And he didn't, get, he didn't go to Babylon. They left him behind along with the sick, the poor, those in society that meant very little to the Babylonians. And so this psalm is not written during captivity. It's actually written a little bit after. We don't know when. But it's a psalm of remembering what it, would, what, what it was like. So it's post-exile. The second thing is that it's a problem psalm. Psalm 137 shares the stage with two other psalms, and these psalms are described as problem psalms. They are called problem psalms because they don't fit neatly in the categories that help us understand psalms. Most of the time, there are key ingredients that help us to detect what type of psalm they are, but with this one, it's a little bit different. Those ingredients aren't there, and the ending is abrupt. Psalm 88 is a psalm that deals with God's silence, God's absence, and it ends abruptly. There is very little evidence of hope. And then there's Psalm 109. 109 is, is violent. It, it deals with the, the author um, 
verbalizing vindictiveness towards the enemies that have caused him harm. That's not a pleasant psalm either. And then there's Psalm 137, our psalm. It has one of the most popular openings, and I'm not going to sing it, and I know you're thinking it. No way, no way. I thought it was Boney M who sang the song, but it turns out it was written nine years earlier by like a Caribbean um, trio. I think it was more, um, you know, um, reggae in style by the rivers of Babylon. And then came Boney M and uh, made it famous. Before I was born, I will add. <laughs> and not only has one of these uh, memorable one-liners that, that starts the psalm, but it also has a shocking end. All within nine verses. Popular start, horrible ending, violent ending. It's a psalm that stirs up anger as the author remembers the state of his people and Jerusalem during that time. It doesn't end well. It's not drawing his thoughts to a logical conclusion. Instead, the author verbalizes his anger, leaves it open, and it leaves, us, leaves it unresolved. And so the third point that I want to draw out, the first one was the time and place. It's a very unique psalm. The second one, the second point is that it's a problem psalm. But the third point that I want to explore a little bit more is the idea that it has some imprecation. It's not a word I don't think we use all that much, but it's an imprecatory psalm, and I'll explain that in just a second. So the first three verses, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. The, there on the poplars or willows is another translation, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Jeremiah talked about this. Jeremiah's issue with his, uh, with his uh, ministry of prophecy is that he had to deal with false prophets. The false prophets at the time were saying, don't worry, Israel, don't worry about Jerusalem. God is going to look after us. And Jeremiah was the prophet who was actually saying everything the opposite. He was saying, look out, because Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And he not only verbalized a 70-year period, specifically 70 years, he also told them to settle down, to actually settle down on the land, I mean, to cultivate the land, to build houses, to grow crops, because the people were going to be there for a while. And that's the context of Jeremiah 29, 11. We quote that verse, that verse a lot. I know that the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. This is Jeremiah talking to a group of people who are going to stay stuck for a while in a land that doesn't belong to them, in a land that they don't necessarily like. And so this psalm is a, is, starts off with a lament. It's a, it's a complaint of how things are in those first three verses. But then comes the real issue. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while we're in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May that my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not understand you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. This is the city, this city over here, should have been the city that was Babylon-esque. 
Jerusalem should have been the envy of all other nations, not because it was the biggest or the brightest or the most powerful nation or city in the world, but because God's presence was there, tangible in the daily practices and the rituals and the festivals and the worship of his people. That should have been the Jerusalem that they aspired to have and to be. Jerusalem's temple was the epitome of Israel's existence. Think about Israel's story up to this point. Um, their, their exodus, their slavery experience in Egypt, and then their exodus, and then their wandering in the desert, and this presence that God is um, giving them slowly but surely in terms of the Ark of the Covenant. And their dream, their desire was to build a temple, to, to settle in a land that God would give them, and to build a temple where God's presence could come in. And this was the benefit of Saul, King Saul and David and Solomon. This is the golden era of Israel and Jerusalem. But it starts to go downhill from there, does it not? Kings start to make some questionable choices, and there's a bumpy road from there. Some kings do well in the eyes of God. Other kings do bad in the eyes of God. And slowly but surely, um, Israel's, uh, Jerusalem's relationship with God is deteriorating to the point that ultimately the temple is destroyed. The living God, this was their dream, the living God, Yahweh's presence is with them in this temple. So instead, the picture that we get is that humiliation is their experience. Not only is Jerusalem destroyed, their, tre their treasured city, but the temple of God's presence is destroyed. For the Jewish community, this song was about longing for a home, going back. That was one aspect of the song. But then the other aspect was this longing to be fulfilled, longing for them to live out the, the call, the desire that God had for them. And so the author, no wonder, is angry at this dilemma. How could this be? How could it be possible that God chose us and then this stuff happens? This is anger we're talking about. This is anger to the point that he wishes the destruction of his enemies. <laughs> and this is where we get the final three verses. Remember, Lord, he says, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. The word Edomites is a, uh, another nation around Israel was Edom. And so there was probably a partnership here between the Babylonians and the Edomites in terms of uh, process of trying to destroy um, Jerusalem. This is what imprecation sounds like. It's the psalm, it's the singer invoking the wrath of God upon his enemy. And I realize that the, maybe the elephant in the room is this violent language of dashing babies across the rocks. We've got to understand that uh, perhaps this was 
um, a military tactic. So not only do you ensure victory over your, over your enemy, but by destroying the, the young, you would certainly secure your victory over a long period of time. And obviously, the, the, the language insinuates that you don't need any weapons to do this. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an activity of war. Not only that, but possibly Jerusalem experienced this. So the author, in his imprecation, is, try, is calling on God to do to them what he had experienced, and he and his nation had experienced at the hands of the Babylonians. So imprecation is not unique to the psalm, uh, not, not unique to this psalm. There are others. There is, there is language throughout the psalms. And if you want to read up more on imprecation, there's Psalm 12, Psalm 58, Psalm 83, Psalm 139, for example. And one of the things that we need to realize is how non-Jewish we are. Uh, we need to understand the Jewishness of this psalm. At the very least, we need to understand that how, how, we need to be aware of how non-Jewish you and I are, Okay. We're a long way removed, historically, contextually, culturally, we're a long way removed from this concept of understanding exile. We understand the story, but we lack the experience to embrace what this fully meant for the Israelites. Now, we could get some stories. We could hear more of Oliver's story, for example, of what it means to be displaced and to have to go to another nation that's not your own. We could unpack this a little bit more, but generally, in our Australian context, this is a foreign concept for us. But what about anger? When was the last time you got angry? I'm not talking about getting angry at the kids for not being able to find their shoes on time just as you're leaving the house. That's probably been more annoyed I'm not talking about anger at the driver that cuts across you uh, in the street. I'm talking about anger at an injustice, a situation of helplessness or humiliation that has caused you pain. Uh, perhaps it's anger you feel right now, an anger that's been burning in you for quite some time. Uh, the type of anger that I have reflected on reading this psalm is um, a situation that was very unpleasant. And it's not appropriate for me to share that story here other than to say those emotions were pretty raw. It was upsetting knowing how others around me that I loved were being treated uh, in the context of relationships and uh, misunderstanding, and the things that are just not pleasant. <laughs> this, this emotional pain during this time was high. And so Psalm 137 reminds us of the basic human desire for revenge. Let's be honest. When someone causes you pain, there's something in us that wishes the same to happen to that person or to that group, to that community, to that particular government, to that particular system, organizational system, whatever it may be. 
Maybe you're angry at God right now because of something very specific. This is the point of the psalm. It's not, it's, it's an attempt, sorry. It's an attempt to suppress the, priv- the primitive human lust for violence in one's own heart by surrendering everything to God. He's not only the living God, he's not only the loving God, the merciful God, he is the God who is holy, and he is the God who is just. In other words, this psalm reminds me that I'm not allowed to be left to my my own devices when it comes to anger. I'm not allowed. This is why I think the psalm is in the, the collection of psalms. There is no author. It just simply verbalizes nine, nine verses and then it moves on. I think the psalm is a reminder that when I'm angry, I'm dealing with a God who is holy and I'm dealing with a God who is just. The action is not, in the ball, if you like, is not in my court. The, the ball is in God's court. And so Israel's preoccupation with vengeance, instead of giving it over to God, could have left Israel, could have left Jerusalem with no energy for freedom or for hope. Maybe the reason Israel could hang on to hope for the new Jerusalem for so long was because Jerusalem, Israel, had learned to turn this desire for revenge over to God. Notice how the speaker does not take action with the words that he has spoken. The speaker doesn't, in fact, crush the heads of infants across the rocks. He doesn't do this. It's a prayer. It's a wish. It's a hope. It's a yearning. But the venom, the the poison that lives inside us during this time is left in God's hands. There's a dual role in this relationship. Israel is the one who hopes, and Yahweh is the one who avenges as he chooses. And so God is not asking us to suppress these emotions. He invites us to to speak about them in tangible ways. By doing this, we give voice to our pain, the feelings of helplessness, our burning anger. Speaking these out to God means that we are giving them over to him, trusting that his justice will be done. And here's another way of putting it. I can pray whatever I need to pray. God can take it. Why? Because I can trust him not to do what is wrong no matter how sincerely I ask him. Do you get this point? All that was just the introduction, just so that I could read that. (laughs) Read it again. The, The point is, I need to trust God to not do what is wrong. I need to trust God that he will hear my sincerity in the hope that he does what needs to happen. So friends, the reality for us is that we don't live in the paradigm of two cities. We're in a world of two kingdoms. The one kingdom appears to offer everything you need in life, but it doesn't take long to discover that this kingdom is ruled by darkness and evil. 
This is the kingdom of confusion and chaos, of insecurity and threats. This is the kingdom where anger and vengeance is in your hands to do whatever it is that you need to do, to do whatever it is that you want to do. Death lives in this kingdom. But I want to tell you about another kingdom. This kingdom is understated. It seeks no glory for itself, but chooses to serve the world. This kingdom is ruled by light. This is the kingdom of second chances, of faith in the things that can't be seen. It's the kingdom of hope for what is yet to come. In this kingdom, the cities are reversed, I'm sorry to say. The weak become strong in this kingdom. The blind see, the lame walk, the one who cries out will no longer need to cry. The fatherless will come home. This is the kingdom where servant leadership is appointed. This is the kingdom where suffering service is prime. This is the kingdom where anger is expressed to God, but trust in his holiness and justice override my heart's desire for revenge. This kingdom is real and is possible to live because of Jesus. And Jesus is its king. Jesus is king because he became the one who was dashed across the rocks. God's baby God's son was the one who died in order that his justice would be fulfilled. Jesus makes possible a better way to live, a better way to deal with our broken world. But it's not found in my strength and ability to do so. Hear, hear this out. It's not up to me to make God's kingdom great. It's Jesus who's doing the kingdom work. And he chooses to use you and me. It rests with Jesus. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, I can't forgive my enemies out of my own resources. Only the crucified Christ can do that. And I through him. Be angry, God is saying. Injustice, oppression, helplessness and hopelessness are all wrong. Be angry, but place all these emotions before God, is my invitation. Verbalize them, name them, write them down. I'm a big fan of writing it down. The reason I like writing it down, and perhaps this is why we're trying to encourage everyone here to spend 20 minutes in the chair, this is not a happy clappy time necessarily by yourself in your own home. This could be a real time of pain. But this is the time where you can verbalize your anger, you can write it down, and I'm, the reason I'm a big fan of writing it down is because you can come back to it. Yes. This is why Psalm 137 is in the, the Bible. Despite its violence, it reminds me that Jesus is in the business of restoration, that Yahweh is interested in um, re, reigniting, if you like, his presence, not only in Jerusalem, but throughout the world using you and me. But the reason I know this is because I can go back and read the anger of another person. I would suggest write it down. A 
And so, in closing, I want to invite you to spend some time with a piece of paper that you've got around you, in front of you. And uh, over the last two weeks, we've been spending some time as a community trying to develop, trying to write our own psalm. And uh, the psalm that we're trying to write um, involves you all. And there's a table at the back, which I'll get you to write your words down at the end of the service. But for now, grab that piece of paper. Have a practice. Give me your best line when it comes to describing the situation that you find yourself in. Don't pray. Don't request. All I'm inviting you to do is to verbalize a line of where things at right now. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept as we remembered Zion. That's their story. What's your story? We've already spent two weeks verbalizing praise and acknowledging God, but now it's time to take a look inside. Let's keep developing this psalm and we're moving towards hope, but we're not there yet. That'll come in the coming weeks. Let's verbalize our angst. Let's verbalize our anger. Let's verbalize our frustration at things that aren't as they ought to be. Let me finish with prayer and I'll give us some time to do that. So, Father, we come before you and we acknowledge, first of all, that you are a loving God. You are a merciful God. You are a gracious God. But also you are the God of justice. You are a holy God. And despite the brokenness uh, in our world, despite the sin that is around us, that I'm a part of, Lord, you invite me to do life with you thanks to Jesus Christ. The reason I can engage with the living God is because of your son, which means that you can take everything that I bring to the table, everything that I verbalize, Lord, my anger, my frustration, my angst, Father, I can bring to you and you can take it. But Lord, communally, on behalf of all of us here, we just want to verbalize to you, Lord, that you are the one who's in control and you are the one who acts with justice and has done in the past, you are doing it now, and you will do so in the future. And you invite me to participate in that. You invite us all to participate in that. But Lord, thank you that vengeance is not mine. Thank you that I can give that to you, and I can trust you to do the thing that you need to do in order for your kingdom to rule in this world. May your name be glorified. Lord, take our anger. Maybe there are some here today, this morning, Lord, that uh, are frustrated. They've been angry for some time. Lord, please meet them where they're at. May they be able to find the words to put down or to verbalize to somebody else. Lord, may they come to rest on you as the God who is just. May they come to trust in you. May they put even greater faith in you to do the thing that you need to do. Take our anger, Lord. Take their anger and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.